One of the greatest challenges in life is whether we can find hope after loss, love and trust after betrayal. Can we rebuild after destruction? This program will discuss and answer with a resounding and unequivocal yes to all of the above with practical methods and tools how to achieve and grow, rise from the ashes. Hi, Simon Jacobson here from the Meaningful Life Center, MeaningfulLife.com. And we are going to be speaking about one of the most challenging experiences in life. After betrayal, after loss, after destruction, are we capable of rebuilding? And not just surviving, but growing and thriving. This program is dedicated by Susan Pressman, Shweki, in loving memory of her father, Malcolm Pressman, Moshe ben Avram, and Penina, on the first side of his passing at the age of 96 and a half. May his memory be a blessing. Malcolm Pressman, born in 1924, was a humanitarian, a World War II hero in the Pacific, in the Army Air Corps, successful businessman, son, brother, husband, and father, his mind was sharp until his last moments. He loved America and taught his progeny to love her too. May his, blessing, may his memory be a blessing for his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. So, tonight is literally the saddest night and day in the Hebrew calendar. This is a day called the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av. The day when the first and second holy temples were destroyed respectively by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and then by the Romans. The holy temple was not just a building, it was where heaven met earth. So this isn't just a destruction of a structure, it actually represents a spiritual cataclysm, a rift between spirit and matter, between the divine and existence, between life and purpose. And that is why, till this very day, we remember Tishabov and we grieve and we mourn. We sit Shiva, literally. We dim the lights in the synagogues, in our homes. We don't sit on regular chairs. We grieve and mourn this destruction. Purportedly, when Napoleon entered Israel during his Napoleonic Wars, and he saw the Jews sitting shiva at the Western Wall, or he saw them mourning, he said, what are they grieving over? And they told him, over the holy temples. He says, when were they destroyed? Thousands of years ago. And his response was, anyone who cries for a building Anyone who cries for anything for thousands of years will ultimately be able to reclaim it. 
that type of persistence. But what really is the story behind all of this? And it's far more than just a religious event. It actually had, tr carries and contains awesome, tremendous lessons in resilience, in growth, and above all, in answering the questions that we all have. It's one thing when we're young and naive and everything is going well. So we believe, we're idealistic, trust, love. But once there's been a betrayal, there's been a violation, a breach of trust, what happens then? So one time we have that capacity to buffer and handle disappointments. But if it's repeated, and if it's sustaining, sustainable, sustained, I should say, then it begins to wear us down. Children who are completely exuberant, loving, excited, assume and expect as a given that they will be nurtured and loved and reinforced and validated. And then when that is, they experience disappointment time and again, critique, invalidation, or worse, abuse, hurt, at some point, their trust wanes. They begin to lower expectations. They retreat and surrender. So it's no surprise as they grow into adults, these children. They will have difficulty with trusting, difficulty with finding love, difficulty with intimacy, because they've been injured, they've been hurt. How many of us as adults, once something doesn't work out, especially if it's serious, we've had a serious breach, a serious trauma, can you regain hope after that? How can you trust when your trust was abused? So for many of us, we do give up. We may not state it, that we've become resigned, or worse, but inside we become jaded, we become even cynical to some extent. This day Tisha B'Av teaches us something that every one of us, every one of you, myself, yourself, every person can learn a lesson, lessons that will change the entire attitude. So let me begin with a statement from the Holy Arizal, from Isaac Luria, the great 16th century mystic. His passing, his yard site, was actually just four days ago, on the 5th of Av. He says that Tisha B'Av in the afternoon, even though it's the saddest day, and the afternoon was the worst because that's when the fires that were burning down the temple were at their highest. They were burning down the Holy of Holies, the holiest place on earth. As I said before, when man, where man meets God, the place where the heaven-kissed earth Burning the high, the flames are going, licking the skies. You can imagine what kind of feeling that left people with. All being destroyed. Today it's a desolate temple mount and still being fought over. Look how Jews gravitate to the western wall. One wall, a remaining wall from the outer courtyard of the, of the temple, remains standing. Remember the exuberance, the euphoria, the joy. In 1967, on June 6th, 
when Jerusalem was liberated. And you saw those soldiers crying at the wall. Thousands of years, all burned down in Tisha B'Av. So you would think, ultimate despair. The end of the road. No light at the, un- at the end of the tunnel. Or if there's a light, it's the light of the oncoming train, as the cynics like to remind us. Says the Arizal, there's a custom. In the afternoon prayer, when the flames were at their highest, we say a short prayer called Nachim. Consolation. Be comforted. Nachim. One word. But it's a short paragraph prayer. We say it in the afternoon service. Says the Arizal, why? Why at that moment, the darkest moment? So the ostensible reason is because when it's darkest, we need consolation. But it's deeper. We're not just comforting. This isn't just platitude making you feel good. It says because at that moment, Mashiach, the Redeemer, salvation, redemption is born in the darkest moment, in the throes of the abyss. Yes, as the fires are at their highest. And this is citing a medrash, an interesting medrash, that when the temple was being destroyed, there was a traveler traveling to the north of Israel. And he passed by, and there was an Arab farmer who had his, whose cows were grazing in the meadow. And as this fellow passed by, the Arab farmer tells him, you hear the groan of the cow? The cow has sensed that something terrible has happened. Your temple, your holy temple, was just burned down. That was the groan, the sigh of the cow. But they waited a few more moments, and the cow sighed again. He says, now the sigh? Your Redeemer, our Redeemer, was born. Because you see, my friends, there's no such thing as darkness as an end in itself. Even in science, where today dark matter Dark hole, black holes, dark light, the different terms which may be so dominant in our universes. Darkness is never an end in itself. A black hole is what? Is a, a entity, a body, that its gravitational pull is so powerful it doesn't let the light escape. So what's more powerful, a bright star or a, dark, a black hole? The black hole is more powerful. There's light, but its light is inverted. This is based on another principle. I'm not saying the science basis, but the concept is based on another principle, also from that result. The great symptom, the great contraction, the great concealment, the amount of power and intensity that lies in concealment is far greater than in revelation. So when you look at life piece by piece, yes, it's a dark moment right now. The flames are burning. But if you look at life as a narrative, as an ongoing journey, you recognize everything is part of a bigger picture. And in that sense, the deepest darkness carries the most powerful light. When two people love each other, so, of course, when that, everything is going smoothly and well, that love is beautiful. Even take it for granted at times, perhaps. And things are flowing. However, when there's a betrayal or some other type of hurt 
one person who loves the other wounds that the one they love. And as I mentioned, it's a repeated process. So the wound isn't just a one-time thing. What happens then? So many of us think, you know what, there's a, certain, there's a breaking point. certain point, you're hurting me so much, I may have loved you, I may still love you, but I can't deal with this. And at some point you can't trust the other, so you break apart, we give up. Some will say, maybe the love was never there in the first place in the full, unconditional way. It was there as long as things were convenient. But as soon as there was a challenge, as soon as there was some competition, some other distraction that seduced one or the other, in whatever way, I don't know what necessarily means sexually, it could be in any form of distraction or anything that pulled you away from your partner, spouse. So the love was tested and it didn't withstand the test. However, True love, and when I say true love, healthy love, whether it's between spouses, whether it's between parents and children, or whether it's between us and God, is a love that is enduring. And even when there's a setback, even when there's a betrayal, that doesn't mean the betrayal is not significant, but there's always hope. Let me tell you the end of the story of Tishabov. The ninth of Av is the end of a period called the three weeks. The nine days, the three weeks. Three weeks earlier, exactly three weeks from today earlier, the 17th of Tammuz was the beginning of the end. I don't even like the word end, but the beginning of the destruction, let's put it that way. It was when the Babylonians and the Romans, according to some opinions, encircled and attacked the wall around Jerusalem. They breached it. Not just encircled, they breached the wall. Which, of course, would lead three weeks later to the destruction. And that's also a fast day, and also a day of grief. Not as intense as Tisha B'Av, for obvious reasons, because it still didn't, was not consummated, the destruction. But there was another event that happened on the 17th of Tammuz. Years earlier, It was the day when Moses returned after being at Sinai and Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the mandate, the blueprint for life that God gave him, the Torah, Bible, a moral code, a moral, divine moral code that would give us the tools to change existence forever and ever for the good, to turn this world into a garden, so it was a, a, quite a momentous event in history. Event in history, Moses up on the mountain for, 10, for 40 days and 40 nights. The beginning of the process, he had heard the Ten Commandments as said by God. The people heard it. Then Moses spent the time on the mountain. He comes down to his chagrin. Tragic. The ultimate betrayal. The people who had heard just 39 days earlier I am your God. Do not have false gods. Do not, have, I, I do not worship idols. Built the golden calf. The golden calf. Moses sees this. And he takes the tablets with the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, throws them down to the ground from the mountain, shatters them. 17th of Tammuz. That was the first as the Talmud tells us, of five tragic events that would happen on that day. And the same with this t- then three weeks later. So this is a period that has many tragedies. But what is the story? Let's continue. 
If you stop right there, that's it. Betrayal, divorce, the end of a relationship. As sad as it may be, we move on. No. Moses marches up on the mountain immediately. And he begins a dialogue, a painful dialogue with God. What is the dialogue about? I want you to forgive these people. Forgive? They did something deliberate. They betrayed me. They, they chose another god, a false god, a golden calf. They're worshipping money, they're gold, however we explain it. What, what do you want me to do? I didn't do anything to them. It's my spouse. I was ready to marry them. In the figurative, metaphorical sense of the marriage between the divine and existence. And they chose someone else or something else. What do you want me to do? We don't know the entire conversation, but some of it is documented in the Bible, in the book of Exodus. It's one of the most moving and intimate accounts, literally like a love story between Moses and God. And Moses keeps insisting and persisting. You must forgive them. Not that Moses was naive or dismissing what they had done. No, they did it. They're accountable. But I believe in this relationship. God says, build another nation. You weren't there. You were not part of it. You're not account- responsible. Build another... No, I want you to re... I want to reclaim this relationship. I want to rebuild it. But there's been betrayal, terrible betrayal. How can I trust them? We dig deeper. And I'm paraphrasing some of the conversation. God would probably be said to Moses, I created existence in a way where there's cause and effect. You put your hand in fire, the, fire, the hand gets burnt. There's cause and effect. This is not up to me anymore. They have betrayed me. They don't want me. They've rejected me. What do you want me to do? Force myself upon them. And Moses said, you were the one that created the system of a hand being burned by fire. There's cause and effect. So you can also re-engineer, you can rewire. Give them another chance, give them hope. The concept of tshuva, let them repent, let them be accountable. Forty days Moses begged and pleaded and besieged God. Forty days. Through Tisha B'av. Tisha B'av was three weeks into this second journey up on the mountain. The first forty days was receiving the law. The second was begging for forgiveness. What happens after 40 days, another 40 days? Be another 10 days from, uh, this is three weeks, it's 21. Another uh, 19 days. Moses comes back on the first day of Elul, the Hebrew month of Elul. God did not forgive them. He did not prevail. So you would think at this point, okay, well, he tried his best. 40 days, for every day that he was up there to receive the law, he had now a day that corresponded to try to gain hope and rebuilding after the betrayal, after the loss. No. He marches back up again a third time and spends another 40 days. And when is the 40th day, the third, 40th day, a series of 40, the third period in this three, point, the, the, the three periods of 40 days. When does it conclude the third period? On Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year. The holiest. From the saddest to the holiest. Why? Why is it so holy? The 10th day of Tishrei. 
because finally Moses prevailed. <clears throat> he would not take no for an answer. He knocked down every door and he finally reached God's heart and soul, so to speak. And God said, Salachti kidvarecha. I have forgiven them as you have spoken. We say it right after Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur night. Three times. A man stood up to God, would not take no for an answer. Do you know what he put on the line, Moses? He insisted, if you don't forgive them, erase my name from your Torah, from your book. Can you imagine? From the book, the book of life. He broke the tablets, not because he was angry. He broke the tablets, was a very deliberate, calculated move. Because the tablets was the marriage contract. He said the people had heard do not have false gods. But they didn't sign it. They didn't receive. They didn't accept the tablets yet. They didn't have them. He broke the tablets. He tore up the contract, essentially. Can you imagine the love, the sacrifice, sacrificing himself? And obviously we don't know God's mysterious ways. Of course he knew that he loves the people. He, of course he knew that Moses could prevail. But clearly it was necessary for someone to elicit it. Because God did create a structure of cause and effect. And he does not suspend that structure and the laws of nature. But a Moses was able to reach deeper. He was able to reach, we'll call it the indeterministic, undefined states of the divine that can rewire, even cause and effect. And reclaim and regain the love. And this time, it's a whole different dimension of love. Because it means it's unbreakable. It's indestructible. Because it went through the greatest challenge of betrayal. And what did Moses give us? The greatest gift in life. The birth of hope. If someone were to ask you, tell me what is the greatest gift in life, people will say, give me billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. Give me happiness. Give me health. Give me a good family. All important things. But why is hope the greatest? Because hope gives us the tool that even after destruction, even after everything went wrong, there's always a burning ember. There's always a spark that can be revived and rebuilt. And when you do that, you become indestructible. That's the true story of Tisha B'av. That's why Mashiach, redemption, is born in the throes as the ashes are rising, as the flames are rising, and leaving the temple in ashes, the ashes have the power to regenerate and rebuild. And this time, a far greater love and a far greater connection and a far greater trust. Now, I know you may say, okay, that's between man and God. What happens with our, our human relationship? Maybe yeah, that person is not, doesn't have that love for me and I don't have that love for them that would, can withstand every challenge. That may be, or it may not be. How do you know? How do you know what kind of deeper resources you and I have? And this isn't just about a spouse or an individual. This is about our lives. It's not always about giving up on a person. It's giving up on ourselves. That was what Moses understood so well. So the lesson of Tisha B'av is interesting and paradoxically and ironically actually a lesson of hope. It's just that part of hope, you have to also tell the story of loss of hope, betrayal. 
setbacks, darkness. But the birth of the greatest powers of redemption are born amidst the strongest and most powerful fires, fires of the enemy that are burning down our structure. Let me apply this now to our personal lives. I'll start with a share a story. Jacques Lifshitz was a great sculptor. He passed away in 1972. He was at the end of producing a uh, sculpting a big big phoenix for for Mount Zion, I believe, or Mount Scopus in Jerusalem. Well, he passed away. It wasn't finished. His widow was, of course, saddened. She was also a sculptress. And she was then at the Rebbe. She came to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I tell the story in the chapter on pain and suffering and toward a meaningful life, right in the beginning. And she was asking her what to do. There are many people, she says, that a phoenix doesn't seem appropriate to place on a, on a holy mountain in the holy city of Jerusalem. And the Rebbe opened up a book called the Book of Job, Eve, to chapter and verse, where it talks about, may your days be like the days of the Chol. Chol is a phoenix, a bird, that lives for a thousand years and then it dies, burns up, but then from its ashes, it is res- resurrected. It's a verse in the Bible. What better lesson in life? The phoenix. Now, we don't need to wait a thousand years. This can happen every given moment. Let me go back to the child. It's a phenomenon, very sad and tragic phenomenon. But you'll see Tishabov plays itself out in our psyches, in the microcosm of our personal lives. It's a... Un- it's a, one of the most saddest things, but there's what's called an out-of-body experience. When a child experiences abuse, especially of severe form, sexual and so on, at some point the child, without any preparation or training, almost leaves the experience because it's so intolerable for the child that they don't even have a memory of it. Some say when they talk about these memories, they talk about, like, I saw something happen to a child, not to me. So in a way, they remove themselves, their minds, their psyches, their emotions, because they cannot accept the fact that someone that loves them could hurt them that way. So besides the fact that you blame yourself, that's what happens, there's also a certain detachment. It's the only way to survive. And that's why many people who suffered severe abuse have certain detachment disorders and attachment disorders. They, they disconnect. They almost have like two different identities. One, whatever happened to them, and that has gone undercover. And then they developed a more tough or another type of personality to protect themselves. And a big part of the work that, of healing is to reconnect, to reintegrate. But I always thought about it. Because you see it as really, I mean, this can be very, very serious and problematic. But then I thought about it in a different context. And I coined it psychological hypothermia. Hypothermia is a phenomenon that when children, for some reason children are more susceptible to it, maybe because of their young age, a child falls under 
and freezing water under ice. You know, you stay in freezing water under ice, it's not very, uh, can be fatal. So years ago, children who were retrieved from under the water seemed to be frozen to death. And they were declared dead until they discovered that no, they weren't dead. The body went into a certain state of more than just shock, hypothermia, where all vital organs stopped and even the doctors and medical authorities could not sense a pulse or any other sign of life, so they declared the child dead. They came to realize, no, there are states where the body goes into such dormant state in order to preserve... So even the vital organs are not functioning because life, sustaining life, is the single most important rule. And they discovered they had to declare children dead or weren't dead. I think the story was that one child started stirring and they said, what's that? It's God's mysterious way to implant a certain element of immunity or protection that even when everything is not working, it's not because it's not working, it's because the body is preserving that last speck of life until it can be revived again when the body returns to its uh, warmth or all the other things necessary to revive that limp and seemingly dead body. So think about it psychologically. Children are not sophisticated enough to know, let me separate myself from a horrible event, something happening to me. It's God's way of protecting the purity, the innocence, that you can say, it didn't happen to me. Now we know what happened to the person, but a part of their soul, in a way, removes itself and detaches in order to protect itself, like with the hypothermia, to the time comes that when you're revived, you turn into an adult, you can reclaim your soul, you can reclaim your life, you can reignite the spark that seemed to have disappeared. This is such an important lesson in life. The lesson is never, ever give up on yourself or on others. There is always more that we may not see, it may not have a sign of life, but it's there. Tishabov captures this. The building was completely destroyed. They could not serve any longer in the temple. The Jews were exiled until this day. Until the third temple is rebuilt. So you would think, okay, you know what? Let's find alternatives. We have found alternatives. We found ways to recreate mini sanctuaries in our synagogues, in our schools, in our homes. The temple, we've not forgotten the temple. Not because we're grieving over a past event, because we know that there will, there's a spark that will be reborn and has already been reborn, the birth of the redemption in the ashes, in the fires, in the destruction. And nothing can destroy us. So when you think of the Holocaust, you think of other tragedies. What gave them the glimmer of hope? Viktor Frankl developed a psychology called logotherapy, man's man search for meaning. But he doesn't touch upon this point. But this is the root of it, the mystery. Where do you have that resilience? Where do you have that ability to transcend unbelievable tragedy? Children torn away from mothers and fathers. Entire family slaughtered, entire community. I mean, it's, it's unspeakable, it's unthinkable, it's unfathomable. Our brothers and sisters. And for that matter, any Holocaust, whether it's a personal one or a collective one, how do you get through that? 
some tragedies you think about it. I mean, parents losing a child, senseless deaths. Even if it's not senseless, it's still. How do you get beyond that? And many of us find it very difficult. But not if you know in the deepest part of your heart that there's no such thing as just an end. There's no such thing as darkness, 100%. There's always a spark. There's an expression, Ud mutzal me'esh, a building burned down, but, and you're looking for some sign of hope, and then you see one smoldering ember. Just smoking, smoking. You go over and you touch it, you don't touch it, you fan it, and you see there's still a sign of life. So as far as deep as the tragedy may be, life is not over. It can be rebuilt. Now you'd think this is theories, if I was just talking concept, but this is a facts on the ground. You tell me the story of Renaissance, revival, growth. Look what happened after the Holocaust. No, the Jews did not lie down and die. And thousands of years of history testifies that every time they were able to find a spark, and they continued on. Sometimes all they had was the spark to hold on, but times when the spark was fanned, yes, and you see beauty and you see growth and you see communities and individuals thriving. It's a universal lesson. Yes, I'm citing a Jewish holiday. Day like the saddest day of Tisha B'Av. I'm citing Jewish history. But this is a universal lesson for human, of the human spirit. That the human spirit is more powerful than any experience, no matter how dark, no matter how tragic, no matter how destructive it may be. This is not obviously in any way minimizing the destruction. It's just focusing on the spark. That's what this day teaches us. That's what this night teaches us. So yes, we mourn, we grieve, remember. But above all, we know that within, not tomorrow, I mean, I made the day after Tisha B'Av, not in a week, not in 10 weeks, not in years from now, immediately in the afternoon of the saddest day, in the afternoon, the fires are, are their strongest and are their highest, destroying the holiest building on earth, the, old, holy, the holiest space on this planet, the redemption is born. And even a cow of an Arab farmer in the north of Israel sensed it. It's a story of hope after loss. Now, we don't have to wait for such loss or abuse. I just use those extreme examples. But all of us are going to have our moments. Our moments where we may give up, or we may feel hopeless, or we may feel there's no real, not anything to look forward to. Everybody has those periods of time. And as we get older, some of us, unfortunately, surrender to that. We throw in the towel. My friends, on this day, of all days of the year, we celebrate. We don't celebrate like we celebrate on Purim or on a holiday, because that's not what this day is about. We have to be humble and respect the loss, respect the destruction. But we know within the destruction lies tremendous potential, and the birth of redemption takes place. For me, this is one of the driving forces of my life, my personal life, my, my professional life, which is very much intertwined. Speaking to people, I have seen a lot of darkness. Thank God, personally, I've not experienced more joy 
beauty and love in my own family and home. Nothing is perfect, but I've seen darkness. And I've always said to myself and say to the people that I encounter who tell me, you know, I know some people are destined for happiness, not me. And I always say the same thing. Not the same words, but the same sentiment. The light I'm aware of is stronger than any darkness you will ever present. Because it's a light that comes from a greater place than any darkness. And you have it in you. And I believe in you more than you believe in yourself at times. And you need to know that. You need to know that you have the ember is still smoldering. There's still a flame. It may not be conscious, you may not be conscious of it, it may not be revealed, it may not be apparent, but it's there. And I know it not just intuitively, I know it because I look at history and I've seen I've seen the the, the, the what shall I say, the superhuman strengths of people who suffered greatly. The resilience. People, yes, who had their trust betrayed. They had their lives hurt. And yet went and rebuilt. And actually took their negative experience and turned them into positive ones. Because you'll say, okay, one second, my trust has been lost. How can I suddenly trust? What are you telling me exactly? What are the methods? What tricks are the trades, so to speak? Well, first of all, speaking about it openly, and even speaking about your own pain and your own loss is helpful because you get it off your chest, so to speak. What you learn, you learn how bad things can be, so you learn how to prevent it. Just say, one second, my trust was betrayed. It was, uh, was, um, I was abused. My trust, the trust was breached. Now I meet people. Why should I suddenly trust? I didn't say you suddenly should trust, but you know what it's like. Now you're looking, so you're more sensitive. But do you want to be a victim of your past? And keep in mind, trust is not built on perfection. And that's what people who've been hurt say. Since I was hurt and my trust was breached, now I want perfection. Someone that was never going to make a mistake. No, that doesn't happen. What you're looking for, trust is built not on perfection, but on accountability. That's what Moses told God. He says the people will be accountable. I'm not talking about letting them off the hook and you know what, so then they'll do it again? Of course. It's a relationship. So when there is a betrayal, and I've dealt with couples who've had that, it comes down to this. Can we learn to trust each other again? Now, of course, it means not repeating lies and deception and covering up or minimizing denials and all that. But it also includes the person who's been hurt to be open enough to say, if I see accountability, I see he's learned or she's learned from the experience. That's where transformation happens. And that's where our choices come into play. To allow, I don't like the word second chance, but I'd rather say is to allow for the opening and possibility of hope, first of all within yourself and then with another. Obviously, with all the guidelines and all the, the safeguards and all the, the preventive measures because you don't want it to happen again. But accountability, honesty. An honesty that would never have emerged had there not been a betrayal. Because people, you don't know what happens. It's only when they're pushed, when we're pressured. This is the lesson 
of this saddest day of the year. The building of hope, the rebuilding of hope, the rebuilding of love, reconciliation, and in a far stronger way, the Yom Kippur way. So Yom Kippur is uh, quite a few months from now, but it's looming and it's right here being born in the darkest moments. Like the redemption is being born. That's why there's a Talmudic statement that says the 15th of Av, which is just six days from now, is equated to Yom Kippur. Interesting. Of all days of the year, Yom Kippur and the 15th of Av, that there were no holidays like this among Israel except the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. And one of the deeper reasons for that is because the 15th of Av is the full moon that follows the wounded moon, the injured moon, that was so betrayed and so abused, the moon representing Malchus, human dignity, on the ninth above. Nine, not the complete ten. The full moon following, says that Rizal, is the completion. And coming after such darkness, it's the greatest moon of the whole year. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. And that's equated with Yom Kippur. Because Yom Kippur is the conclusion of the process. When Hope is regained. Forgiveness is granted. To err is to be is human. To forgive is divine. Yes, the divine forgiveness. To know forever after that no matter what happens in life, and when there are setbacks and there are mistakes and even deliberate ones, with effort and work, you can rise from the ashes. You can, find, you can find light, you can find strength, and even greater strength. And I've seen it. I've seen people who've suffered, and you look at them, they're refined. They're shining, they're glowing. I don't envy them. I wish they didn't have to go through the pain. But pain has turned them into giants. Giants. Models. Very often I tell people, you want to know what to do? Go to speak to this and this person. See what they've gone through. Someone who's been through the fire and what has happened to them. They've been resurrected. There's a tremendous amount of power in that. Can we gain it without any fires, without ashes, without destruction? I would believe, like to believe, yes, with the right effort. But unfortunately, it's usually the catalyst is some type of downturn. So the story of life is captured in one night and one day. You just have to see the large narrative. So after thousands of years of us remembering, of us mourning, as, they, as it says in the book of Psalms, Hazer and Bedina, those that sow with tears, Berina Yuktzeira, will reap with joy. Tears are sad, but tears are also moisture. Makes things grow. I remember once going on a tour in a forest. The guide was actually extremely interesting and, and stimulating. And he showed us parts of the forest where there was a fire fire, forest fire. Tire, tire swaths, entire sections were burned down. You couldn't tell, looking, ostensibly looking from a distance. But he was trained, and he take, took, us, took us to a few tree stumps, or even actually trees, and he showed us where the fire burned. You could see, still see, and then how it regenerated. It's such a miracle 
It's a, it, I, was, I was completely blown away. And then I read and heard, of course, that very often that's what they do. They actually deliberately light fires to regenerate the forest. So I realized there's another way to look at a fire. Obviously, fires can consume and destroy, and they do. On the other hand, fires, when they're controlled, are the root of our life. We need warmth. We need the heat. And then you see this regeneration. And it's like, it's, it's resurrection. There's no question about it. It's the phoenix. The lesson to our lives. Not only do this it survive, it grows even in greater ways. Because the, the fire does, burns away the, 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 what's the word I want to use? Um, the toxins, the predators, the unhealthy elements in any tree or other vegetation or whatever else is going in that forest. We always hope there's no side of bad, negative side effects. And what you see in place is a far stronger, more powerful growth. But you have to look at the big picture. The story does not end on one day. You have to see it as a progression of events. And as such, it teaches us about the human spirit, things about the human spirit you could never have learned without the fire. So God should bless us all that we should have the minimal of fires, minimum, minimum of fires in our lives, minimal challenges. But if they come and when they come, Never forget the lesson. Look at the calendar. Look at Tisha B'Av. Understand it's the gravity of the darkness, but realize it's the birth of redemption that gives us the power to rise from the ashes. So in practical terms, the methods is number one, remember there's always a bigger picture. Number two, connect to people that are not trapped as you may be in the now, in the pain, in the suffering, in the past. People who can give you a breath of fresh air. Even a rope. They throw you a rope. They throw you some hope. Number three, dwell on the future, not on the past. The demons and skeletons that haunt us occupy such precious real estate, your mind, your heart. Dwelling or being even consumed with what happened to you, including the anger and the frustration and the bitterness and the, yes, the temptation and wish for vengeance. It may all be justified, but what is it doing to you? It's continuing to allow the fire to burn and destroy your life and destroy your, your, your psyche. So to look forward, get involved in projects, in activities that you enjoy, Listen to music. Exercise. Do things that give you inner satisfaction, that you can say at the end of the day, ah, today, I can go to sleep, I feel I accomplished something, I helped someone. That brings me to help someone. You've been hurt, so you could think, I've been hurt, why should I be helping anybody else? That's not the response. Then you're just perpetuating what happened, you're becoming someone that's also not helping others. Maybe even hurting, God forbid. No, the way we counter it is do good things and suddenly you suddenly see you can do things that you didn't believe you can. So have others help in believing in you and then start believing in yourself through actions. 
It's hard to just believe in yourself when you feel like you're a failure or you feel you've been hurt or you feel there's no hope. Immerse yourself in spiritual studies and prayers. Feed your soul with beautiful, ethereal, sublime ideas, experiences, feelings, emotions. Listen to music I mentioned, songs. Song can transport you to another time and place. Use it as a therapeutic way. This is all how we heal Tishabov, the Tishabov in our hearts and souls, and how the redemption is born from there. You have to do something. You can't just expect things to happen. By the grace and mercy of God, maybe things will happen, but that's not how we should approach it. Whatever you can that's positive, bring it into your life, introduce it into your life. Because that will, in some way, spark that pilot flame that you may not even be aware of, and it will bring it alive. At the end of the day, it's our actions and our positive attitudes and thoughts and speech. Do things that are illuminating, and you'll see it will bring that spark alive. You'll say, but I'm not in the mood, the cash 22. Do it anyway. Or find someone that will help you do it. Join, join a group, a class, partner with someone. There's much that can be done. And if you can't do it yourself, there's nothing to be ashamed of to ask another to help. Good people will help you, and there are good people out there. Stay away from the negative, from the toxic, from the critical, from those that are from the line of fire. You don't need that. You've had that, enough of that. And yes, you will then discover the Yom Kippur within you as well, and the 15th of Av within you as well. The redemption within the destruction. The love within the betrayal. Again, nobody should have to experience the negative. But if and when, and in whatever form or fashion it takes, please know. Please remember, and always remember, and remind yourself time and again, the story is not over. The story is not over. And you control the script. You control the narrative by your attitude, by your words, by your actions, by the initiatives, the environment you choose to create. In an interesting way, this pandemic, COVID-19, has compelled some of us, or many of us, in that direction. But don't stop. Don't say, okay, you know, this will be over, let's just go back to the norm, the old norm. No, use it as a wake-up call. Use it as a personal stimulation, a personal inspiration. That when life has been disrupted around you, all your schedules, you know, you dig deeper and you find great light. You find great power. And remember that you have everything you need inside of you to deal with any challenge that comes your way. This has been Simon Jacobson, MeaningfulLife.com. I really am honored, especially in a time like this, to be speaking with you about these important matters that are life-changing. Changed my life, and hopefully will change yours. Please partner with us. We are now just launched, just a few days ago, a Meaningful Lifeline campaign, fundraising campaign. 
Over the last few months, we've been creating a nonstop, <laughs> I mean, I can't tell, overload of hundreds and hundreds of programs. By now, probably close to 300 programs, special programs. Focusing on the human condition, on the challenges we face. That even though there's an unknown, finding certainty, hope, strength, fortitude, courage, direction, clarity in these challenging times. And I say this with all humility. It wasn't planned. I and my team, we rose to the occasion because that's how we've been trained. And the response has been really phenomenal. Many people say, you're our lifeline. That's where we came up with the line, meaningful lifeline. It's not our own line. So please partner with us. Because this requires funds, it requires work, a lot of work. And I really do believe it's a joint effort. Every one of us has to do our part. So go to MeaningfulLife.com slash Lifeline. Donate generously. And please share this with others. You'll see a nice little promo there. Some other stuff that we've uh, assembled. And above all, take advantage of the resources that we're offering. I assure you, you will not be disappointed. On the, on the contrary. You can subscribe. You can share. We're on different social media platforms. But above all, as I said, share with others. Encourage others to help us. Share with them the messages, the ideas. Because after all, we are all part of one larger narrative. Not just you and your life and your past, present, and future, but all of us. One larger story. God bless you all. May we see the minimal of pain and darkness and the maximum of light and redemption. But always remember, no matter what situation you're in, see it through. Do not give up. See it through. Be well. And may these days be transformed. Transformed, not just eliminated. Transformed from sadness to joy. From loss to growth. And from setbacks to the deepest form of love, trust, and endless celebration. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by the Meaningful Life Center. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at MeaningfulLife.com donate.